You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. I've been asked to share on this topic. The challenges are great, but the odds are in our favor. The challenges are great, but the odds are in our favor. And the way I processed that statement was to ask, what does God want to accomplish in the North American church that seems impossible? What is that mission-critical thing that we are to do, but it just doesn't seem likely? And where I landed might surprise you. Unity. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the mission-critical thing I landed on that seems impossible, but we must do it, is unity. And if that surprises you, stick with me. I'm just going to preach these three verses. But what I see here is that if we don't get unity right, everything else doesn't really matter. And that might not seem obvious to you, so stick with me. My, my title's called Impossible Unity. We're going to look at three things. The impossible nature of unity, the impossible work of unity, and hopefully, if I have time, the impossible witness of unity. So we'll dive in. Impossible nature. I joined this movement late. Like I said, Pastor Brett Fuller, Bishop Brett Fuller plucked me out in my mid-30s, so I was grafted in late. And I had to get used to some things about this family. And you're all my family, so I'm going to make fun of us a little bit. But for the first year or so, I wasn't called my name. I was called Big Faith, Man of God, Champ, and some combination of Big Big Faith, Champ, Man of God, just string them together. At first, I was flattered because I was never called those things. And then I'm like, do they really know my name? (laughs) Maybe they don't know my name. But that's okay. (laughs) Because, come on, Big Faith. No, I love that because they're calling spiritual greatness out of me. I loved it. But the way I processed that, I'll be honest, is like I heard Big Faith, go plant that church. Man of God, go start that campus ministry. Champ, go and build your church into a mega church. That's the way I processed that. And there's nothing wrong with spiritual ambition. I want to do great things for God. But here's how I never processed those words. Big Faith, build unity. Champ, go build that unified church. Because it just wasn't a big spiritual goal for me. In fact, if you look at our passage, if you look at the attributes we need to build unity, gentleness, humility, patience, loving forbearance, like that's the stuff that lives in the basement of the church, the spiritual attic of the church, because those things make you feel small. They make you feel limited. When's the last time you spent time with a leader and you're like, mama, there goes that patient man. Oh, wow, there goes that woman with forbearance or any of those attributes. You know, like, I remember Dr. Brooks, for the first time meeting him, I was so impressed. I'm like, why is George Clooney ministering at our church? So good looking. Is that weird for me to say? So good looking. <laughs> My wife was too impressed. That's not good. <laughs> See, that kind of stuff grabs your eye, grabs your attention, charisma, leadership, dynamic skills, but who goes looking for unity? When you go church shopping, who on their top of their list is like, unity, 
It's usually sermon, worship team, children's ministry. I mean, we're, we kind of assume unity will happen. It's like spiritual body heat. You know, you get enough people on mission, you're hoping somehow unity will get exuded. But if you look at verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, Paul's writing this in prison. I urge you to live a life worthy, worthy of the calling. You know, I love Jesus. I love the fact he died for me, resurrected. And Paul spends three amazing, if you ever want a summary of the gospel, read chapters one through three of Ephesians. What he did for me. And if I could respond with a life worthy, I'll sign up for that. And right here in chapter four, this beautiful hinged chapter, He spells it out. Here is the life worthy of the cross. Here is the life worthy of the resurrection. Here is the life worthy of that divine sacrifice. Here it is. Here it is. Unity. That's the worthy life. A life of unity marked by humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance. No, I don't want that. Tell me to plant a church. Tell me to start a campus ministry. Tell me to grow my church into mega that aligns with my ambition. Tell me to wear skinny jeans. I'll do it. I'll eat quinoa. I'll be vegan in LA to wear the skinny jeans. I'll do all that. But gentleness, humility, forbearance, which means as a movement, we could plant a thousand churches. But if we're not, I mean, those are good things, but if we're not unified, we're not living a life worthy of the calling. We could grow our church into massive behemoths, but if we're not completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, somehow we're not living out the life worthy of the calling. I just don't know, how, I, how did I not see this? That Paul literally puts unity at the top of the list. This is the life worthy of the calling. All the other stuff is good, but here's the life worthy of the calling. And I think Paul's just taking the playbook of Jesus. Because Jesus, on the final night of his life, prays in John 17, Lord, make them one. As we, you and Abba, me and Abba are one. May they be one so that the world may know, right? You know that passage that God sent me. And so Jesus, Jesus equates, like he, he, he puts high stakes on the believer's unity, like Like, your unity will prove my gospel to be true. In other words, unity is not some peripheral thing. It's not some dusty thing in the basement or the attic. It's not something we can assume. It is supposed to merit our highest spiritual ambition, which explains the prayer that precedes chapter 4. This prayer always blew my mind. I'm going to read it for you. This is right before a passage, if you have your Bibles. This is Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all 
generations uh, forever and ever. Amen. That's like rocket fuel prayer, isn't it? You're praying down the presence of God, the fullness of God. I used to just apply that to everything I wanted. But where does rocket fuel belong? Where is it supposed to go? To Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Paul is on his knees praying down the fullness of God, the full anointing of God, that we might be unified. That you might live a gentle, humble, patient. Have you ever applied that prayer to this verse? I didn't, except they're right next to each other. What the heck? <laughs> and so we look across the landscape of the American church. BLM, ALM, liberal, conservative, mask, no mask, woke, anti-woke, CRT, anti-CRT. It'll be a fun time at that debate today. Vax, anti-vax, the list goes on, and I wonder how the Spirit feels about that right within our church. And I wonder if it seems impossible. We just kind of resign ourselves to echo chamber churches. But I feel like if Jesus prayed, John 17, he deserves the answer to that prayer. And I think for all the spiritual ambition we have, I saw young people jumping up and down reminding me how old I am. Oh my gosh. All that spiritual ambition, all that zeal, what if we pour that into unity? Because I think that's the greatest apologetic for our day. These burned out millennials and angry Gen Zs, I mean, we could say beautiful truth statements, but what they want to know is, do we love? And can we love differently than the world? And so I think... We need to dust off unity and place it where it belongs. This impossible, supernatural, majestic, all-consuming goal that demands our highest spiritual ambition. Do you agree? Amen. Well, let's get to the work then, the impossible work of unity. If you're tracking with me, it does involve some work, namely verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Let me read that again. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now remember the stakes of this verse. Paul just prayed on his knees that heaven would drop down and fill us to the fullest measure that we can live this, this out. Be completely humble, gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And it says then make every effort to keep the unity. That's the every effort. It's that verse. We have to do everything we can with all the anointing we have, with all the spiritual juice and power we have to keep living out verse 2. Be completely humble, not a little, completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. And so I thought about that and I thought about three things that we need to commit to if we're going to do this work and make every effort. Here's the first thing we got to slow down. You ever fly over speed bumps? The danger, my wife is always like asking me, hey, respect the speed bumps because the kids fly and your car is flying and there's reasons the speed bumps are there. You know, there's a reason why they want to slow you down. Well, when you read verse 2 slowly and thoroughly, these are giant spiritual speed bumps because you can't fly through this, okay? 
If you're busy chasing after all your goals, it could be even kingdom goals while trying to live the Instagrammable family life, there's just simply no time to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Deep down, you know that, that love is slow, connection's slow. And if you take verse two seriously, we really have to slow down. If this, if verse two is not just a verse we read through, but if, it, if we respect it, we give it dignity, we give it the place Paul demands we give it. We give it the place John 17 demands we give it. If this is really our highest spiritual ambition to be, to live the life worthy of the calling is to be gentle, humble, patient, forbearance, like we gotta really slow down. That's the first work, is to ask the anointing of God to slow us down. Because if we're running past intimacy with Christ and people, we're running towards idols, not toward God. If we run so fast, we have no way to be humble, gentle, patient, or long-suffering. We're chasing not after God, but vain conceit and selfish ambition. And I say that as a pastor running a church plant who wants to start campus ministries and start other locations and be big. I need to slow myself down to a point where verse 2 can be real. And unless I do that, something is terribly wrong because Paul says... This is the life worthy of the calling. The second thing I notice here is that if we're going to slow down, specifically, we need to slow down to listen incarnationally. Slow down to listen incarnationally. Because the one thing you notice about humble, gentle, patient, long-suffering people is that they know how to listen They're not deflecting. They're not uh, defensive. They're not inserting their own junk. They're not gaslighting. They're not interrupting. They're not pushing you away. They're fully present, extending their entire self in the act of listening. I remember at a marriage seminar where we paid a lot of money to sit and be intentionally humble and gentle towards each other. And what they had us do is incarnationally listen, where you give your spouse 15 minutes of uninterrupted listening. I brought my wife to tears simply by just shutting up and hearing her. (laughs) I was like, I guess I'm a terrible listener if 15 minutes changes her life. I mean, it's so powerful. It's so powerful just... Zip in the mouth, being fully present, making good eye contact, and really listening. The mark of someone who's completely humble, gentle, patient, long-suffering is that they make less of themselves and make more of the other person, and they're present to take in that person's pain. That's where the rubber meets the road. You can say you're humble, gentle, long-suffering all you want, but where it really matters is when someone brings their pain to you. Or worse, they say, you're the problem. You're the cause of their pain. And then are you there with humility and gentleness and long-suffering to be fully present and make enough space within yourself to take that in? That's where this really shows up. And so, so if we're going to live this life worthy of the calling, to keep the unity, to be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, we need to slow down and slow down enough to listen incarnationally. And here are 10 things that this author, uh, Peter Scazzaro, writes about what incarnational listeners look like from his book, Emotionally Healthy Relationships. You can snap a picture, there's a lot of words here, but number one, my close friends would describe me as a responsive listener. Number two, When people are upset with me, I'm able to listen to them without being defensive. 
Number three, I listen not only to the words people say, but also to the feelings behind their words and their body language. Number four, I have little interest in judging other people or quickly giving my opinion to them. Number five, I'm able to validate another person's feelings with empathy. Number six, I'm aware of my defensive mechanisms in stressful conversations, e.g. appeasing, ignoring, blaming, distracting. Number seven, I am profoundly aware of how the family I was raised in has shaped my present listening style. Number eight, I ask for clarification when listening rather than fill in the blanks or make assumptions. Number nine, I don't interrupt to get my point across when another is speaking. Number 10, I give people my undivided attention when they're talking to me. We need all the anointing we can get to do this. Now to tie all this together, I just picture you sitting knee to knee with Jesus and you're pouring your pain out to him. And you might even say, Jesus, you're the problem. You left me, you abandoned me, you didn't answer my prayer, where were you? And you look up and you see his face and what do you think his expression is? Is he bothered? Is he impatient? Is he gaslighting you? He's trying to cut you off? Does he look angry? No, most likely, in your picture of Jesus, his eyes are brimming with compassion and empathy. And he lets you speak, and he hears you, and he receives you. And what if we could listen to each other like that? What if verse 2 means, I mean, there's so much to verse 2, but what if it means at the very least we're able to listen incarnationally? What if the broader evangelical church listen incarnationally to when people of color cried out their pain? I remember years back when the SBC, their publishing arm Lifeway, put out this VBS curriculum called Rickshaw Rally. And it was this caricature of Asian culture. It was chopsticks, egg rolls, rickshaw, geishas. I think they were ninjas. (laughs) And Asian American pastors and leaders were protesting like, this this is not good for Asians. This is not, this doesn't dignify our culture. There's so much more to us you could use for VBS, not ninjas. But the committee was, was all white and they were deep into the process and they just simply said, you're too sensitive. And so it took a nationwide Asian-American online protest to get them to stop and apologize. And I say that as an example of why isn't it the first instinct among brothers and sisters to just listen. When there's a cry from our black brothers and sisters about black lives matter, why is there an instinctive all lives matter? When our Hispanic brothers and sisters cry out about what's happening on the border, why is there a quick reference to MS-13 and rapists and so forth? Where is the empathy? Where is the listening? There might be truth that needs to be said, but not before empathy, not before the pain moves you. Any truth that precedes lament and grief is not truth that can be heard. So, when a pain moves a people, the word says that we weep with those who weep. And if you're not willing to move towards the pain, then you haven't read the prophets, you haven't read the minor prophets. God is always in the cries. He's always in the pain. And once you move into the pain, then maybe you can speak. But until then, shut the mouth, open the ears. Let your heart feel incarnationally 
the way Jesus feels your pain. So what if verse 2 looks like we listen incarnationally? The third thing, I'll close with this point, uh, point two with this, is um, we got to slow down to wash feet. Now hang with me. Listening incarnationally for all those who are being blasted by other people's pain, right? But what if you're the one in pain? What if you're the one wounded? What if you're the one injured? How do you apply verse two to that context? I'll tell you how you don't apply it is cancel. Okay, and this is where woke moves way too fast for gospel-loving people. Because canceling is a social remote control where you just click, 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 and you turn people off. And that's not gentle. I'm sorry, it's just not humble. It's not patient. It doesn't align with verse 2 to simply erase someone. And Jesus, I think about his men. He could have canceled his disciples a dozen times over in the Gospels. I know one time where I would have for sure, if I was Jesus, was at the final meal. By this point, he had brought them all three years, taught them about selflessness. He told them that the greatest shall be the least, and the least shall be the greatest. He showed them a child to be like this. And here at this meal, he's offering himself as bread, as wine. He's told them he's going to die, and they're bickering about who is the greatest at the table in Luke's version. I'd be like, I'm done. Like, click, click, you're done. I'm canceling. I'm going to find 12 strangers out there and start over. I know I got 12 hours, but I'll do it. (laughs) But here's what Jesus does. This blows my mind. And I want you to hang with me because washing feet is not a good place for some of us to be at, given what we've been through. But just hang with me. Jesus gets up from the table He does something extraordinary. He takes off his outer garment. I know when I'm offended, and I know Jesus was bothered by what his men was doing, because later he's going to tell them, you got to wash feet, all of you, okay? But he gets up, he takes off his outer garment. When you're offended, that's the last thing you want to do. I want to be like that lizard where, like, like, the gills come out. I'm like Godzilla. I'm bigger. But Jesus comes up, and he takes off his outer garment, which means he's vulnerable. He's just in his underwear, They wore two things, tunic and an outer garment. Takes off the outer garment and shows his weakness, his humanity. And then he gets down and he holds these guys, all of them who will abandon him, one who will betray him. They're all bickering about something stupid and offensive and he's holding their feet. Did you ever have someone hold your feet like that? I'm not talking about pedicure, manicure. I'm talking about like, there was one time in my life where a pastor got down and wash my feet. And for me, it's traumatic, and I'm about to share this with you all, so we're family now. I'm missing a toe on one foot through an accident. And so for me, it's a traumatic thing for anyone to look at my feet, let alone hold it. But I remember when that pastor got down and undid my laces, took off my sock and held my foot, I was like, what is he gonna think when he sees a missing toe? Maybe he'll reject me, maybe he'll walk away. But instead, he got all his fingers up in there, (laughs) and he started rubbing that nub I was like oh that's gross I bet that's the clip that's going to make it on the promo Um, but here's what I felt I started immediately crying I was like all of 14 years old I started crying because 
in holding the dirtiest, mangled part of my body, I felt like he was holding my broken life. And then when he prayed over me, it went right to my heart because he created such a vulnerable, safe space. And so what do you think Jesus was doing? You think he cared about hygiene? He's showing them, instead of bickering about who is the greatest, you are to mutually create such an authentic, loving, safe space where you can hold the mangled, broken parts of each other's lives and bathe each other with the gospel. And he's doing that to people who offended him and who will offend him. And so what are we to do as people who've been offended? Cancels fast, but it's not verse two. We are to lead, not with rightness, but with weakness, with vulnerability, because behind that ugly post might be fear. Behind that horrible comment might be trauma. Behind that offensive, obnoxious behavior might be sinful addictions that if we actually create a space to be vulnerable and humble and authentic, we can get to some of these roots, talk about the... Listen, not too long ago, Bishop Brett was addressing the Western Cluster. He did a beautiful thing. He sat on a stool, and he had every right to just go off as a leader in our movement who's been a hero to people of color for this movement, who's been through so much pain and trauma, him and Cynthia both, he had every right to just go off. Pastor Brett got on that stool. He took off his outer garment. And in a way I've never heard him before, he shared his pain. Like you could hear a pin drop. And then afterwards, every word he shared were like missiles to the soul because there he made it such a safe space to be ourselves. And so what if your first move, if you're wounded, is not to cancel, but to lead a conversation that starts with weakness and humility and vulnerability that allows the other person to let down their guard and maybe in that deeper underlying connection, there can be a real conversation about what's happening and you can bathe each other in the gospel. I'm not saying it's always gonna work, but that's our call as Christians at least to this family. And so we gotta slow down to wash feet and what would happen, family, if we become a movement known not just for the jumping, not for just the church planning, not just for the campus ministry, all that's amazing, we're not gonna stop, the gates of hell won't prevent that, but what if we're also known as incarnational listeners and feet washers? Like if if half of us are listening incarnationally, the other half are busy washing feet, we're gonna, we're going to have some unity here. And I'll close with this. Amazing, I've got time. We'll close with this. The impossible witness of unity. In Philippians 2, in Philippians 2, Paul talks about how um, the church of Philippi is going to shine like stars. And he tells them it's because they're, they're not going to argue with each other. They're not going to fight. It's their unity that will make them shine. And I think in this crooked, depraved, broken, divided world, the greatest contrast is our beautiful unity. It's the family. 
I know we've had seasons where we focused on truth statements, and those will always be relevant, but I feel like, and I said this before, the greatest apologetic to the young people now is not just how the church sounds about doctrine, but how it feels. Like if the people come and they don't feel love, they don't stick around for the truth statement. And so unity is missional. It's not navel-gazing. How we do relationships is the mission. If we love each other, the world will believe that God sent Jesus. May we apply all our spiritual ambition, all our anointing, all of Ephesians 3 to be completely gentle, humble, patient, bearing with one another in love. Be incarnational listeners. Be feet washers in the name of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, I'm asking for our people today. Help us be like you, Jesus. To listen like you. To wash feet like you. To be family. Lord, so much about this culture makes it hard to follow you. We put our eyes on you, Jesus. We want to have your ethos. An ethos that takes us past wokeness into love. Love is much harder. We commit ourselves to love and to unity and to give ourselves to this beautiful work. We pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.